Well, I'd like to begin, uh, first of all, by, I think, isolating two reasons um, to be cautious in considering this subject of, of the mental health services in general and, indeed, this, this period in contemporary Irish social history. The first being, uh, I think, that we must be mindful that these debates are, in a meaning, meaningful way, still ongoing, as can be seen in the recent uh, RTE documentary, Behind the Walls, uh, and therefore it is impossible to come to firm conclusions on some of them. Um, it should suffice at this point, I think, to identify the trends in legislative reform and the priorities of policymakers over the past 40 to 50 years. The second reason is a more personal one. Uh, I submit that I have difficulty describing any period in which I, I was alive as history, uh, although I fear that might, I might have to get used to that um, as time goes on. Um, so, since the 1950s, uh, public discourse surrounding the mental health services in Ireland has been dominated by the language and the agenda of reform. But despite good intentions, progress has been haphazard and somewhat sclerotic. As early as 1953, the Minister for Health had conceded that his department had been working on amending legislation to the Mental Treatment Act 1945, allowing that the sheer magnitude of the 1945 Act was almost certain to require amendment as time went on. Some months before that, indeed, the, Ro the Royal Medical Psychological Association, Irish Division, had appointed a subcommittee with the purpose of making recommendations for the revision of the same Act. And similarly, in 1957, the Department of Health publicly recognised that mental hospitals were dangerously overcrowded, and throughout the 1960s, the political establishment consistently voiced sympathy for the need to overhaul the psychiatric services. The most significant development in this period was the appointment of the Commission of Inquiry into Mental Illness in 1961 and the government's attendant willingness for a somewhat technocratic solution uh, by relying on professional expertise both from home and abroad to investigate the services and to, to formulate future policy. The report, published five years later, was universally accepted as being enlightened and pioneering as well as congruent with international best practice. And again, the government demonstrated a clear willingness to endorse its main findings. Implementation of its proposals, however, proved difficult as the number of obstacles to reform slowed the rate of progress and it would be a further 18 years before another government-appointed study group, Psychiatric Services Planning for the Future, directed political attention once again to the anomalies in the mental health services. The latter report recognised that an implementation process, something which did not take place in 1966, was required if the proposals were to be realised. Most notably, the Commission's belief that by 15 years from the date of publication, the number of beds in the psychiatric service would have fallen to 5,000. But vested interests, financial constraints, a lack of key professional personnel and relative public indifference leading to political impotence all contributed to the ne continued neglect of these imperatives. Now, I just want to give you a chronology, I suppose, why 1966 and why 1984? Well, this period is kind of bookended by two reports. One, the Commission report that I just mentioned, and the other was the Planning for the Future report in 1984. And in the, in the interim, there were a couple of other important reports that I'd like to draw attention to today. Uh, 1966, the Dublin Health Authority report, which is mainly authored by uh, two very prominent psychiatrists who I'll talk about a little bit, Ivor Brown, uh, who everybody probably knows at this point, and uh, Dermot Walsh. Um, 1971 saw the creation of, of the health board and effectively a new structure in Irish health policy. Uh, which had uh, an impact on uh, the way services were provided uh, and in, 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 around the country. Uh, 1976, uh, the government promised a white paper, or at least stated that a white paper was in preparation, although uh, 
that didn't actually materialize. In uh, 1978, we saw a further report from the Eastern Health Board, uh, which was a development plan. Again, Ivor Brown being uh, instrumental in this particular plan. 1980, we saw an introduction of a legislation in the form of the Health Mental Services Bill in 1980. And uh, again, this, this legislation fell by the wayside uh, and was, was supplanted uh, in the main by the, by the 1984 report. Uh, so just to give you the main themes uh, of what I'd like to look at, I suppose, and the kind of main themes of, of, the, of the talk in general. Uh, first of all, the conditions in mental hospitals, which is, is probably the most emotive subject uh, in terms of looking at mental health services. Um, legislation, which effectively is mainly about admission and discharge procedures, um, Outpatient and domiciliary facilities, which are, were, were the main sort of um, facilities that were, were, were being looked for uh, by many of the advocates of reform throughout the 1960s, 70s, and 80s. Uh, the treatment and care of patients uh, within the hospitals, the profile of the hospital population, um, the role of psychiatry, and the role of professional discretion, which came under um, attack in the 1980s, particularly early 1980s. Um, professional competition, and we see this again emerging in around the early 1980s, I think, when psychologists and social workers and other uh, professional disciplines uh, become more engaged with the debate on, on mental health service provision. We do have to look at political considerations, um, and we have to consider changes of government personnel and uh, issues like that in terms of the way that the, the aspirations are, um, were, were met. And finally, uh, I think a very compelling um, issue is the idea of patients' rights and particularly in consent to some certain treatments within in the hospitals, which again became a big issue in the late 1970s, early 1980s. Um, just to again sort of give you a graphic, uh, I suppose that a background graphic to uh, descri describing how the 1961 uh, commission came about, was this major he banner headline, I suppose, of, of, of the, the fact that, which was announced by the Minister for Health in 1961, that Ireland had the most psychiatric beds in the world. Uh, which, if you look at this league table, there we are. Uh, number of psychiatric beds for 1,000 population, 7.3. Um, and um, it was that statistic, more than anything else, which led McEntee, uh, that guy again, uh, as Minister for Health, to appoint the Commission which I will just talk about in a minute. So in what was a very comprehensive report covering all aspects of the mental health services in Ireland, the Commission's principal recommendations reflected an innovative and fresh approach to patient care, advocating a different attitude and alternative forms of treatment for short-term and long-term patients. It recognised that patients' needs varied to a considerable extent and that the treatment of individual long-stay patients could, in certain cases, best be provided in short-stay centres. Accordingly, it argued that care should be given in psychiatric units situated in general hospitals, which was a major departure from previous, um, pr previous uh, thought. This view was supported by all available international evidence. A commission on the mental health services in Denmark, which it reported in 1956, had recommended that a fundamental principle for future development should be a close union between the psychiatric hospitals and the general hospitals. 
closer to home. The British Ministry of Health in its seminal study, A Hospital Plan for England and Wales, 1962, referred to the increasing need to bring together a wide range of facilities required for diagnosis and treatment and suggested the provision of new district general hospitals which would contain short-stay psychiatric units as well as facilities for all other specialties, including the addition of psychiatric units to a number of existing general hospitals. Finally, the report of the American Joint Commission on Mental Illness and Health, Action for Mental Health, had similarly decided that no community general hospital should be regarded as rendering a complete service unless it accepts mental patients for short-term hospitalisation and therefore provides a psychiatric unit or psychiatric beds. In respect of long-stay patients, the Commission recommended a series of planned and purposeful rehabilitation services which, most importantly, would be supervised by an adequate and well-trained staff capable and willing to operate the unit as a therapeutic centre where the emphasis is on treatment, not on custody. The Commission suggested that the aim of the Department of Health should be to decrease the number of long-stay beds by an average of 300 a year over the next 10 years and by 400 a year over the following five years, so that in 15 years the total number of long-stay beds would be reduced to a total of around 5,000. The report emphasised that these figures were target figures, which could not be calculated with any real accuracy, and in the event its aspirations proved to be somewhat fanciful. Finally, the 1966 report also envisaged a considerable expansion in the type of personnel employed in psychiatric services that would include psychologists, social workers, uh, occupational therapists and others whose skills were needed and appropriate. These additional personnel would not only be employed in the hospitals but also in new outpatient services which the Commission recommended should be given a high priority in the programmes of all health authorities. These clinics would be particularly appropriate in urban areas and would in some cases be held in the evening to cater for working patients. One obstacle to reform acknowledged by the Commission was the perceived or the entrenched attitudes, I suppose, of the general public to patients with mental illness and therefore the Commission deemed it necessary to carry out a programme of education for the general public, recognising that the public has become considerably more enlightened in recent years but much yet remains to be done. The Commission therefore recommended that a positive programme of public education should be initiated, operating through professional workers in the field of mental health, through key personnel in the community and through the mass media of communication. It should be the responsibility of the Minister for Health to encourage the development of this programme. Alongside a positive public image, the Commission also attempted to outline a proper research commitment within Irish psychiatry. This prioritisation of research was unsurprising, given the stature of some of the members of the Commission. Unlike previous examinations of the mental health services in Ireland, the Commission was profoundly influenced by the presence of prominent psychiatrists both from Ireland and elsewhere, as well as Irish-based clinicians such as Norman Moore of St. Patrick's Hospital, Vincent Crotty of St. Lomans, and John Stack of St. John of God. The Commission also benefited from the knowledge of some of the leading psychiatrists in the NHS, such as George Egan, Otto Fitzgerald, Leslie Kylo, David Kay, and Professor Martin Roth, who by 1959 had achieved an international reputation and was routinely consulted by the WHO. While some measures commended to government by the Commission were fast-tracked, such as ministerial approval for five psychiatric catchment areas for Dublin in May 1966 and the establishment of the first general hospital psychiatric unit in the country in Waterford in 1967, the rate of progress of others was less impressive. When questioned in the Dáil in March 1968 about implementation of the Commission's recommendations, the Minister for Health, Sean Flanagan, serving in his first ministerial post, insisted that measures to improve services for the mentally ill were being pressed ahead. The report was, he told the House, being examined in consultation with various bodies and interests involved, and steps were being taken to implement many of its recommendations. 
The political will to challenge the status quo was also noted by a member of the Commission, uh, the journalist Michael Viney, who introduced an influential series of articles published by the Irish Times by proclaiming that the will to progress within the psychiatric service had never been stronger. The government has never been more alertly concerned to bring the mental health service up to date while also attesting to the immense handicaps still to be overcome. One such handicap was a chronic dearth of staff to oversee the implementation of the Commission's ambitious plans. Although the Minister gave his approval for the appointment of four consultant psychiatrists in 1967, three of whom were were designated clinical directors of psychiatric teams and a new director of research by the end of 1969, there were 47 vacancies for permanent psychiatrists and 12 for permanent senior psychiatrists, indicating the difficulty the department faced in reforming the mental health services. Attracting bright medical graduates into psychiatry was not a new phenomenon. However, indeed, this was hardly surprising given the fact that, as the Commission observed, the time allotted to psychiatry in the curricula of the various medical schools was inadequate in relation to the importance of the subject in medical practice. The emphasis is on physical medicine, the virtual exclusion of psychological medicine, in which subject the instruction given does not produce an adequate appreciation of the importance of social and psychological phenomena. I just want to give, I suppose, another slide there about developments, which I'm not really going to talk about. I just want to leave it up there uh, to give you some some sense of what was happening um, in Ireland in the mid-1960s. Brown, obviously, who's you know, recently published his, his memoirs and um, is probably the best known, I suppose, Irish psychiatrist, if you discount Tony Clare, or Anthony Clare, as he was. Uh, but it was probably the most um, well-known psychiatrist working within the Irish Health Service. Uh, and he was appointed as chief psychiatrist to the Eastern Health, Health Board in 1965, having returned from the United States and worked for a time in, in, in St. Brendan's and St. Lomans. Um, in 1966, he was appointed professor of psychiatry at UCD, um, and he forwarded this, or he, he authored this report um, about Dublin catchment areas, uh, and they were soon to be established. So, I just want to talk a little bit about that report. Now, he also, uh, other developments were that uh, Peter Beckett and Noel Walsh, two psychiatrists working in North America, returned to take up chairs, one in Trinity and one, one in UCD, and a new joint postgraduate training program was also set up between uh, the, the three uh, training bodies within Dublin at the time UCD, Trinity, and, and the RCSI. So 1966 also witnessed uh, the compilation of another important report prepared this time for the Dublin Health Authority by its newly appointed chief psychiatrist, Dr. Ivor Brown, and his colleague at St. Lomans Hospital, um, Dr. Dermot Walsh. This report drew heavily from a thesis Brown had written while a research scholar in Harvard. It, too, acknowledged the poor public perception of the psychiatric hospitals and the psychiatric services in general, which had hampered the recruitment and training of psychiatric staff. It proposed that the city and county of Dublin should be broken up into districts which would be served by psychiatric teams and related not to a hospital but to the population of the area served. The report criticised the situation then pertaining where patients were first admitted to a private facility, wherever this could be afforded, and then when the money ran out were dumped, this is using Brown's own words, into the public services. An important part of the plan to turn the oft-expressed desire for community services into reality included a more active discharge programme, the establishment of a working liaison with community medical practitioners, and particularly general practitioners and agencies, the implementation of an active therapeutic programme within the hospital, and to take effective uh, measures to improve the public image of St. Brendan's. And I think one of the, thing, one of the um, measures that Brown did introduce was a lowering of the, of the facade of the hospital, famously, I think, at the, at the time. Uh, Brown and Walsh recognised the inappropriateness of housing non-psychiatric patients within the confines of the hospital. 
It is essential that these should be defined as distinct problems which do not fall to be dealt with by the psychiatric service and that separate facilities should be provided to deal with them. To this end, later in the same year, Brown submitted proposals regarding the mentally handicapped patients in the care of the Dublin Health Authority, which estimated that 500 patients in St. Eta's and St. Brandon's were primarily intellectually disabled, or to use the nomenclature of the day, mentally handicapped. The present system whereby the mentally handicapped are dumped into mental hospitals and labelled as psychiatric patients is very unfortunate. It gives a false picture of the incidence of psychiatric illness and also leaves the nurses and doctors in a confused position where they are trying to apply the standards of modern psychiatric practice to a mentally handicapped person who persons who are unable to respond to such treatment and require a completely different program. A director of mental handicap was subsequently appointed in 1968. The Dublin Health Authority liaised with voluntary service providers in an effort to coordinate future planning, eventually leading to the publication of a government report in 1980 planning the mental handicap services. So despite these proposals both the Commission's proposals and Brown and Walsh's proposals, the legislative reform anticipated by the Commission and desired by Brown and Walsh was not forthcoming. 1971, the then Labour TD, Dr Noel Brown, calling for new legislation, described the state's mental hospitals as benevolent jails where people's freedom was being unnecessarily denied. Brown had began working in the mental health service in December 1963 under the RMS of St Brendan's Dr John Dunn, and his experience there overlapped with that of Dr Ivor Brown, who had started in the hospital a year earlier. Both Browns, Ivor and Noel, regarded Dunn uh, as a relic of an outdated psychiatric establishment, conservative, cautious, and lacking empathy or imagination when it came to treating patients. Although it is noteworthy that Joseph Reynolds, the historian of the hospital, offers a much more sympathetic view of Dunn. In his memoir Against the Tide, Brown described himself as a prisoner of his demeaning job as a psychiatrist jailer. I'd come to understand my true role. We we were an elite authorised by law to deprive a fellow citizen of liberty for life. Society pays us well and buys our compliance and with it our silence. I was not proud to be a consultant psychiatrist. They were the words of Noel Brown. Um, Just a a word about Dermot Walsh. Um, He's been been to um, seminars here before and uh, he's remarkable individual really because he, he's, he turns up at the most unlikely places uh, but he and I suppose uh, Brown and others um, formed a, a sort of a, a group within the 1960s that really I suppose were the vanguard of, of reform in terms of how psychiatry viewed itself as much as anything else um, and he, he, as you can see uh, like others he had completed his training abroad um, and came back uh, to work in St. Lomans Hospital under Vincent Crotty, who apparently who was very influential uh, on um, these young psychiatrists at the time. He was awarded a WHO Travelling Fellowship in 1965, and from 66 to 68 he served as Medical Officer for Mental Health with the WHO Regional Office for Europe. He also encouraged the establishment of the Schizophrenia Association of Ireland during the 70s, and um, between 69 and 2003 uh, became the Director of the Mental Health Section of the Medical Social Research Board, uh, slash Health Research Board. And finally, in a, in a very long and in illustrious career, um, served as Inspector of Mental Hospitals and Psychiatric Advisor to the Minister for Health between 1987 and 2003. Um, so that's just a brief bio of, of, of Dermot Walsh, which I think is important just to note his contribution and, um, in the context of, of that report. Now, both... Um, Brown and Walsh had worked in St. Lomans 
uh, Ballyone, which um, was run effectively by Vincent Crotty up to his death, I think, in 1964. Uh, like a lot of the facilities at the time, it was formerly a sanatorium that was uh, built during the 40s, I think, um, and became, in the words of Ivor Brown, a rebel enclave where many of the um, psychiatrists who disagreed or who um, suffered under the regime of Dunn in Grange Gorman uh, felt much more at home and much more comfortable. Um, Lomans basically accommodated transferred patients from St. Brendan's who were mainly acute um, cases, uh, but there was a rapid turnover and a high discharge rate um, due to the proactive nature of the treatment that they got there. And um, both Brown and Walsh and others have contrasted um, this regime, in other words, Crotty's regime, with the authoritarian management style being practiced at Brandon's at the time. Um, so I, I think the influence is strong, and uh, it does cert certainly play into uh, the proposals that they made uh, together in, in, in 1966. So Noel Brown um, urged new psychiatric laws, as you can see, in February 1971, and described himself as being not proud to be a consultant psychiatrist at the same time. Um, in an address to the Solicitor's Apprentices Debating Society of Ireland uh, in 1971, he argued that the current legislation gave the psychiatrist an un unhealthily powerful role in society. The psychiatrist was a person with complete authority given to him by the community, so that by simply signing his name to a pink form, he could take away an individual's freedom and liberty. Brown's penchant for the incendiary phrase was always likely to place him in the position in which he felt most comfortable, that of maverick outsider, Yet he was not the only one within psychiatry to hold such apparently heretic views. As well as affording the psychiatrist undue power, Brown also argued that society had higher expectations of psychiatry than other branches of medicine, where it was accepted that even with the highest standards of care, patients would die. For psychiatrists, the fear of facing a possible departmental inquiry, as well as a coroner's hearing in the case of one of their patients committing suicide, dictated a reluctance to discharge patients, however slight their risk. Now, I don't know if, if that was overplayed by Brown, but it certainly added fuel to, to his criticisms of the establishment. Brown reiterated this heterodoxy during a debate on the 1980 bill when he stated that psychiatry was still at the witch doctor medicine man stage and that the profession was doing its best to conceal that from society. This is a long way from the falsely optimistic claims of a younger member of the profession addressing the inaugural meeting of the Biological Society and the Royal College of Surgeons in November 1963, who sensed that the old fears and old prejudices are vanishing. The psychiatrist has been accepted and welcomed as a wise and trusted friend, as a physician who has succeeded in opening up a new world for the neglected patient. At the same time, he acknowledged how psychiatry had been regarded as the most neglected and most backward of all branches of medicine, arguing, a la the Commission of Inquiry, that the time devoted to its study in the curriculum of the medical student is quite disproportionate to the demands which will be placed on his time and knowledge when he becomes a qualified doctor. An editorial in the Journal of the Irish Medical Association of January 1964 picked up this theme. The editorial opined that a drastic revision of existing undergraduate teaching of psychiatry is needed. It is clear that our present system of medical education is not designed to produce such people, adequately trained and properly motivated psychiatric personnel, nor our salary conditions to attract them. We must, for the sake of the mental health of our people, train our psychiatrists properly, give them the stimulus of academic and personal advancement, and pay them adequately. Quite an order of preference, I suppose. Ivor Brown and Dermot Walsh, also writing in the Journal of Irish Medical Association in May 1965, canvassed for a higher status for the psychiatric profession, describing the service as poorly paid, 
RMS-dominated and academically backward, leading to a difficulty in attracting sufficient doctors of ability and ambition. Noel, uh, Noel Brown's chances of influencing government policy would have improved considerably had he been able to secure a Labour Party nomination in the 1973 general election. As it happened, he was unsuccessful and was ultimately expelled from the party, having won a seat in the Shannon election of that year. His former party leader, Brendan Corish, was appointed Minister for Health and within two years had arranged for the drafting of a white paper on the psychiatric service, which he hoped would be published in 1976. Believing it would, it would form a blueprint for innovations of policy and planning for the future. Corish justified the delay in publishing the white paper owing to the lack of an overall critical analysis on which agreed policy for the future might be based. One wonders only what, what those who served on the 1966 Commission would have made of this particular assertion. Corish was succeeded as Minister for Health by Charles Hawley after another change of government in July 1977, and although no white paper was forthcoming, such was the continuity of benevolent ministerial sentiment towards mental health services that the Irish Times could cheerfully proclaim in April 1978 on foot of ministerial approval for a five-year development plan drawn up again by the Eastern Health Board that the process of getting modern psychiatric treatment out from the walls and cobwebs of the traditional mental asylum has been going well. The announcement of ministerial approval was made at the meeting of the Royal College of Psychiatrists at which Ivor Brown and Dermot Walsh gave a review of the psychiatric services in Ireland to an audience largely made up of British clinicians. Professor Brown stressed that the community development plan would stand or fall on the basis of providing an alternative place for every patient who was unable to make a complete recovery. There was no question of dumping people out of mental hospitals, out onto the streets or into substandard nursing homes or homes to be a source of pain and disturbance to their relatives. Further quotation from that particular meeting, um, again, sees kind of Ivor Brown this time in, in again, sort of um, dissenting mode, uh, talking about uh, how people... uh, cannot be send people from the cradle to the grave in a tranquil stupor or in lifelong therapy. I feel there is need of an acceptance of the fact that some suffering is normal and natural and much of it is inevitable in the human context. I think uh, Brown sort of developed that, that, that theory, um, probably took it to, to, an, to its extreme uh, in the, as, as time went on. But at this point, he was still very much within the psychiatric establishment but was, was, you know, was a dissenting voice, if you like, within it. Um, and that, I think that's important, just to point that out at the time. So the announcement of the five-year development plan followed a separate intervention by Walsh, who made a strong case for new legislation in the press in early 1977. Describing the 1945 Act as a large and ponderous document, Walsh suggested that the Mental Treatment Act for England and Wales, 1959, which had been extended to Northern Ireland in 1961, was still awaiting its Irish counterpart, he pointed out the administrative anomaly created by the absorption of the mental health services into the general health services, whereas the 1945 Act legislated for an independent administrative system which was answerable to mental hospital boards appointed by the local authority. For this reason, many of the administrative procedures contained in that legislation were outdated. Another deficit of the 1945 Act identified by Walsh was its failure to define mental illness allowing general practitioners who supplied the medical certificates a discretion that was in theory open to abuse. A definition of mental illness was in fact provided by the British legislation which categorised mental disorder as embracing mental illness, psychopathic disorder and mental subnormality. By the 1970s, the trend in mental health legislation was towards a more restrictive rather than embracing definition of mental disorder. A departmental review of the British Act, for example, suggested that personality disorder, mental subnormality and mental illness be preceded by the word severe 
with the additional qualification that these conditions be seriously threatening either to the individual or to society before they come under the terms of the Act. At its annual conference in March 1978, the Irish Medical Association made a formal request to the Minister uh, to consult with its own experts before publishing a new mental health bill. Introducing the resolution, Dr Paul McCarthy described conditions under the existing legislation as pretty terrible. In particular, Dr McCarthy drew attention to the large number of violent and dangerous patients housed in inappropriate settings around the country, and conversely, the presence in the highly secure Central Mental Hospital in in Dundrum of individuals who no longer needed to be there. He also highlighted the few cases of children who had been admitted to mental hospitals and remained there due to the reluctance of their parents to take them back or to allow them to go into foster care. The meeting also resolved to set up a working party to present its case to the government. Now, I think Walsh's call for updated legislation uh, echoed the professional viewpoint generally, but this wish also reflected the desire that no pending legislation would be drafted without medical input. In fact, the frustration voiced by the IMA was more to do with the lack of appropriate resources rather than any real flaws in the legislation. Nevertheless, it was decided that a working party of the association be be appointed to bring to the Minister's attention the main inadequacies of the 1945 Act, as suggested by the Royal College of Psychiatrists, who they contended had done a lot of work on this already. Allowing the terms of the Irish professional response to be largely dictated by the work already carried out by the Royal College of Psychiatrists not only broadened the debate, but meant that the proposed legislation would inevitably be greatly determined by psychiatric experience of the British law. Interestingly, at the same time, the British Mental Treatment Act of 1959, itself a product of a royal commission chaired by Lord Percy, was, as has been mentioned, uh, being subjected to governmental review with some input from the psychiatric profession. The 1978 plan was ultimately deemed too expensive by the government, and in a meeting with a deputation from the Eastern Health Board in the following year, the minister requested the planners to reconsider their proposals and to return with the cheaper version of the plan spread over seven to ten years, utilising rented accommodation rather than building new services. Dr Jim Bean, representing the Health Board, argued that the proposed cost of £25 million was equivalent to the cost of building one of the four new general hospitals then being planned for for the area, area being the, the Eastern Health Board. The Health Board psychiatrists continued to put pressure on the department, submitting a revised report in 1980, which asked the government to, among other things, take cognizance of the fact that the very existence of a state of neglect in the psychiatric and geriatric services is is irreconcilable with the moral values and social conscience of the country, to reaffirm its policy to decentralise the psychiatric service from an institutional to community base, to implement its statutory right and obligation to lay down minimum standards of treatment facilities, to give more autonomy to the health board and to upgrade its role in the policy-making process to the status of equal partner, and to advise the minister that the present conditions in the psychiatric service constitute a breach of fundamental civil rights for patients. The trenchant tone of the health board's report and its public championing by its authors, which included a debate on the Late Late Show with Hawhey's successor as minister, Dr Michael Woods, was given ample justification in light of the public disclosure of the conditions in the country's oldest public mental hospital, uh, St. Brandon's. Uh, Public concern arose from a letter to the Irish Times written in November 1978 by a group of 13 non-consultant doctors working in the hospital. In it, the group appealed to the public to put pressure on the Minister for Health to improve the appalling physical conditions that many patients have to endure. The most serious claim made was that half the wards were infested by rats, mice and cockroaches 
and something of a public crisis ensued, dominating the headlines for a week and leading to an adjournment debate on the mental hospitals in the Dáil, uh, at which two opposition spokesmen, deputies John Boland and Dr John O'Connell, took, took turns in lambasting the performance of the minister. What made the Grange-Gorman episode even more embarrassing for the minister was the doctor's claim that they resorted to writing to the newspapers only after their concerns were relayed directly to the minister without any due recognition. Hawley's response was to reiterate the government's intention to close down the hospital, and when he finally paid a visit to inspect the conditions in St. Brendan's, he met Ivor Brown in inimitable fashion by instructing the chief psychiatrist to get off your arse and come back in here and manage this hospital. Hyde's contribution to the Doyle debate saw him articulate in an unexpectedly candid fashion the guiding principle of successive governments over many years in regard to the mental health services. That the conditions existing in some mental hospitals have not been improved long ago is a reflection of the lack of any great level of public concern about them. I said that governments generally respond to public demand, particularly if it is articulated in a definite and sustained manner. The ability of mental health services to embarrass the government, and particularly the Minister for Health, did not end there. In July 1979, it emerged that no statutory inspection of the state's public mental hospitals had taken place since 1962, and no report had been submitted to the government since that time. The lack of any independent inspectorial regime undoubtedly facilitated the unfortunate conditions in Grange-Gorman and elsewhere, but also meant that no third-party specialist expertise was available to long-stay patients seeking discharge. The 1966 Commission, in considering possible remedies for the improper detention of certified patients, stated the following in relation to increased powers of observation for the inspector. The inspector of mental hospitals must visit all mental hospitals at stated intervals, and he has a duty to give special attention to the state of mind of any patient detained where the propriety of the detention is doubtful, or when he is requested by the patient or by any other person to do so. The inspector must also ascertain whether the periods of detention of any temporary patient have been extended since his previous visit, and if so, he must give particular attention to the patients concerned. Not only did the absence of this inspectorial regime mean that once again the government had failed to act on the Commission's recommendations, but it also meant that the government was in breach of its own 1945 legislation. As a way of mitigating the growth, the growing awareness among the public that the the government had relinquished its duties in this regard, a new mental health services bill was finally and rather hastily introduced in the summer of 1980. During the bill's second reading in October, the minister, who is now Michael Woods, described it as the most important legislation specifically concerned with the psychiatric services which has been introduced since the Mental Treatment Act 1945, which, given that there had been no major changes to that bill in the meantime, was, was undeniable. This new legislation was predominantly the work of the departmental official Joseph Robbins, a future historian of mental illness in Ireland, and no real consultation process took place during its drafting. It was divided into three parts, registration and supervision of psychiatric institutions, admission and discharge procedures and provisions which protect patients against unnecessary detention and which relate to issues such as consent to certain treatments. The first section gave the Minister sole power to register psychiatric institutions. The second provided for one category of detained patient, thereby simplifying procedure, And the third stipulated that in order for detention to be made, the signatures of two registered medical practitioners were required, bringing procedure into line with those existing in the private hospitals. In terms of unnecessary detention, the bill proposed the establishment of a national system of review boards. Under the existing legislation, most of the safeguards in this respect were vested in the Inspector of Mental Hospitals, and as we have seen, the integrity of that practice had been fundamentally extinguished. 
The review board will function as a broadly based independent appeal system, subsuming those duties of the inspector which concern the investigation of appeals made against detention. The review board was also enabled to investigate the circumstance of those in long-term care, again assuming the role described uh, for the inspector in the Commission of Inquiries report. What the bill did not attempt to do, oddly enough, given the recent controversies, was to legislate for treatment and conditions within the mental hospitals, which, in the opinion of the Minister, would be a meaningless exercise since it is so dependent on the quality, training and professional dedication of the medical and nursing staff. Further, he argued that it was not possible to legislate in an effective way as to the detailed day-to-day care which any patient should receive and that legislation could never be expected to serve as a substitute for the proper and conscientious discharge of duties and obligations which fall on the caring professions. An important development symptomatic of the bill's laudable if somewhat uneven approach was the establishment of independent review boards to deal with cases of unnecessary or dubious detention. The review boards were to be made up of three persons, a consultant psychiatrist, a lawyer, and an individual who was not a member of either of those professions, and allowed for a patient or a patient relative to request the review board to consider the propriety of that um, patient's detention. If this departure was an affront to some within the medical profession, Section 44 of the Bill could be considered a concession as it gave the Medical Council discretionary powers in prescribing rules relating to certain forms of therapeutic treatment. Woods envisaged that recourse to this provision would be rare given the high standards of professional ethics prevailing in the medical profession in this country. Political opposition to the Bill rather predictably pointed to its lack of ambition and scope. John Boland, the Fine Gael deputy, disagreed with the Bill's intention to relax the 72-hour statutory limitation under which voluntary patients had to provide sufficient notice before being discharged and adverted to the grandiose claims of the 1977 Fianna Fáil election manifesto which undertook a complete reorganisation of the mental health service. In no way, said Boland, can this bill be regarded as being a complete reorganisation of the mental health services because they are not, as so often happens, even referred to in any way in this legislation. A more interesting and ultimately more relevant form of opposition materialised outside the Dole Chamber, mainly expressed by bodies representing the psychiatric profession and the mental health advocacy groups, which elucidated a number of largely legal-inspired initiatives that asserted the the issue of patients' rights, particularly in relation to detention and consent to treatment. For example, correspondent to the Irish Times provided a legal view of of the proposed legislation, which called for the bill to be amended to give patients the right to refuse treatment and opining that it did not offer enough protection against unwarranted, unwarranted detention. Such concerns were largely inspired by the low esteem in which the psychiatric profession was traditionally held by the civil rights activists. For example, the letter suggested that psychiatry is not a science. It cannot be regarded as slowly and cautiously building on secure foundations. It also questioned whether the patient should have the right to legal aid while making his or her case to the review board, and whether he or she would be entitled to call witnesses. None of these issues had been dealt with specifically by the bill, leaving many unanswered questions about their operation. In response, Dermot Ward, consultant psychiatrist at St. Lomans, defended the psychiatrist's role whose duty it was to protect, not invade, the civil liberties of patients who may be threatened not necessarily with malicious intent, but with compulsory hospitalisation and treatment. Despite his rebuttal of these particular points, Ward expressed general dissatisfaction with the bill, which he protested was not acceptable to the medical profession, on whose shoulders the Minister for Health, without any real dialogue with the medical profession during its drafting, has thrust it. 
where there was agreement between doctors and lawyers was on the inadequacies of the proposed legislation, albeit for different re- differing reasons. The medics disagreed with the section of the bill that required the signatures of two general practitioners, uh, bringing the regulations into line with those for private patients. Whereas the lawyers saw this as a welcome step that provided safeguards for patient rights, the medics felt that this was restrictive to expeditious care. Ward felt that the most serious omission in the bill was the lack of any reference to minimum standards of hospital and other treatment facilities under the auspices of the state. Furthermore, they saw the bill's preoccupation with protecting the public against the spectre of wrongful incarceration by doctors as a red herring that, unlike a statutory commitment to maintain minimum standards in hospitals, hostels and outpatient facilities, would require little capital expenditure. Ward's invocation of the condition in hospitals was timely and likely to be persuasive due to the recent publication of yet another damning expose of those conditions in an article published by the news magazine McGill in October 1980. It documented in graphic terms uh, a system that had been neglected by the political establishment for too long. Again, the effect of the piece was to pit the discomfited uh, government against the bullish psychiatric profession who endorsed the article's findings as representative of the state of mental hospitals generally. The minister immediately went on into defensive mode, maintaining that services in the majority of the hospitals was of the highest quality, whereas the psychiatrist placed culpability for the condition of some facilities firmly at the door of the Department of Health and uh, its secretary, Dr. Brendan Hensey particularly after the creation of the health boards, which resulted in an imbalanced distribution of resources to various sectors of the health services. The issues relating to the legal detention of patients, in fact, derailed the legislation completely. Although it was duly passed by the Oireachtas in 1981, it was not enacted firstly because of political change caused by the 1981 election and subsequently for not being consistent with the Council of Europe recommendations for the legal protection of persons suffering from mental disorders placed as involuntary patients of 1983. And the last thing I want to really look at is um, the, the, the role of advocacy groups and the role of, of uh, those campaigning for, for patients' rights and how that affected the, the debate in Ireland. Um, the debate that took place largely in the, de- in the pages of the national newspapers uh, relating to patients' rights in the 1980 bill reflected what social historians characterised in the reform of mental health legislation as a pendulum swinging between two opposing schools of thought, legalism and professional discretion. The passage of the Mental Health Amendment Act in Britain in 1982, which was later consolidated into the Mental Health Act 1983, was the culmination of a vigorous reforming campaign um, couched in these terms and which undoubtedly influenced the nature of the debate in Ireland in the early 1980s. Indeed, during his main contribution to the proceedings in the Dáil, uh, Woods had heralded the significant role played by various voluntary agencies, particularly the Mental Health Association of Ireland, uh, to a growth in popular understanding of the problems of the mentally ill. In fact, the Mental Health Association was one of a number of advocacy groups that was prepared to politicise the plight of psychiatric patients. Another such group was the Irish Council for Civil Liberties, which described the bill as too narrow in scope and a lost opportunity. Much of the inspiration for this new emphasis on patients' rights in Ireland came from the exemplar of the National Association for Mental Health, or MIND, in the United Kingdom. Throughout the 1970s, in a plethora of publications, in evidence to official committees and in the courts, MIND argued that many aspects of the treatment of those diagnosed as mentally ill were an abuse or denial of their rights, and that legal means should be used to right such wrongs. Specifically, they found the 1959 Act, which was extended to Northern Ireland in 1961, assumed that patients detained in mental hospitals for treatment could be treated against their will. Uh, The two main people involved in mind, uh, for those 
who don't know were Larry Gostin and Tony Smith. Um, this view was corroborated by the Davis Committee and Hospital Complaints, convened in response to a series of inquiries into conditions in British mental hospitals, not uh, disclosing not, uh, conditions not unlike the, those that existed in, in, in some of the extreme examples in Ireland. Uh, this committee considered the issue of voluntary patients refusing treatment and then being detained under the Mental Health Act in order to enforce treatment. It stated that detained patients could not legally refuse treatment but proposed that a second medical opinion should be obtained before treatment could be imposed. The 1966 Commission in Ireland had shared similar views to the provisions in the British legislation, which was hardly surprising given that it was largely influenced by similar assumptions of psychiatric practice. Although it wanted to see regulations relaxed to such an extent that mentally ill patients should be admitted to and treated in hospital with as little formality as possible, on much the same basis as patients suffering from physical illness, it shared the attitude of the British law to consent to treatment. Even though he is not capable at the time of exercising his right to accept or refuse treatment, he, the patient, is regarded as being willing to accept the treatment deemed appropriate by the competent medical officers present. In the absence of positive objection by the patient or the patient's relatives, it should be assumed that the patient is willing to accept the regimen of the hospital and any treatments provided. In terms of compulsory admission and detention, the Commission stressed the view that compulsory powers should be used only as a last resort for example, when positive efforts to persuade the patient to accept treatment voluntarily have failed. Again, using the unreliable barometer of a largely uninformed public, the Commission stated that it was unaware of any evidence of public disquiet about the effectiveness of, of the remedies for improper detention uh, now available, that is, available in 1966. They appear to have worked well, and the Commission considers them adequate. The, the guiding force behind Mines' theoretical and legal assault on the British legislation was the organisation's legal director, Larry Gostin, who wrote A uh, Human Condition, Mines' Proposals for Reforming the Mental Health, Health Act in Britain in 1975. In it, Gostin challenged the assumption that compulsory detention also allowed for compulsory treatment, based on the Percy Commission's statement that there should be no distinction of, distinction of status based on whether a patient is admitted informally or through the use of compulsory powers. The premise of the ideology of entitlement outlined by Gostin was that access to health and social services should not be based upon charitable or professional discretion, but upon enforceable rights. The rules of equity and fairness are deeply entrenched principles of law, wrote Gostin. From a broad legal perspective, a government is not obliged to provide health and social services. However, once it chooses to provide services, it cannot arbitrarily deprive or exclude certain individuals or client groups. If there is an unreasonable denial of a service, the remedy is or should be provided by the law. Uh, this brought mind onto a collision course with the Royal College of Psychiatrists, the voice of the psychiatric establishment, which interpreted mind's stance as a challenge to the professional integrity of psychiatrists. The college's own review of the Mental Health Act 1959 was published in October in 1974 and reflected an awareness of the considerable public interest, in particularly in ECT, which, which may have been triggered by the release of the, of the highly acclaimed film One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest in 1975. In turn, the Department of Health and Social Services in Britain produced a consultative document on the same subject in 1976, ensuring that the field of consent to treatment in ECT remained an emotionally charged medico-legal debate. I just want to finish on, on, on the influence of mine, just, um, just to sort of point out the, you know, the, the, the sort of proximity of... of Mind's assertiveness and the, um, some of the arguments that were being put forward uh, in the Irish context, in, uh, particularly around the 1980 bill. And I think it's, 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 it's certainly uh, worth drawing, drawing attention to it. Uh, finally, um, in 1987, 
In response to opposition questioning, the government admitted that not only was the 1981 legislation defective, or uh, particularly in respect of the power to make required regulations, but that the general trust of the Act had been superseded by developments in the psychiatric services, most notably by the publication of the report Psychiatric Services Planning for the Future, uh, 1984. Uh, this report was the product of a working group established in October 1981 by Wood's successor, uh, Eileen Desmond. Um, its remit was to draw up planning guidelines for future development of the services and was presented to government in December 1984. As in 1961, the membership of the working group reflected the willingness of the government to place psychiatrists in the vanguard of reform. Of the 12 members appointed, exactly half were psychiatrists. Drawing much of its inspiration from the earlier commission, it echoed much of its findings, uh, but significantly resolved to deal with the important issue of implementation. Recognising that the major reason for the non-implementation of the recommendations of the commission's report was the lack of any attempt to, to, to translate paper proposals into practical application, Planning for the Future felt that appropriate mechanisms were necessary, both centrally and locally, to ensure that changes were progressed. For this reason, the report required that each health board draw up a realistic plan to determine how the various parts of the service would interrelate, as well as indicating a timescale for action. It recommended organisation of local management bodies below the health board level into a three-staged administrative organisation, which would also include the catchment area management committee, and at a more intimate level, the hospital management team. This was designed to ensure that policy and its implementation, its monitoring and its evaluation would be affected. Now, just before we get too complacent about uh, the progress, um, uh, I just want to, again, uh, draw your attention to uh, the findings of the Inspector of Mental Hospitals published in, t in 2010, uh, which described how wards in some psychiatric facilities around the country were unfit for human habitation, how a significant number of children had been admitted to adult psychiatric wards in one hospital, how untrained staff administered specialised treatments, including ECT, how one well-known acute hospital in Dublin failed to comply with rules governing the use of ECT, mechanical restraint and seclusion, and how in at least one hospital there was evidence of dysfunctional management. Responding to these findings, the Minister, whose sole responsibility was to the mental health services, acknowledged that things were bad, but insisted that money would be made available to redevelop these services over the coming years.